0: this is the east drama cast with your moderators kevin Pay from the
1: yale school of medicine dave morris from intermountain medical center in salt lake city utah
0: carrie valdez from covenant hospital in saginaw michigan and matt martin from madigan army medical center this program brought to you by the Online Education Committee of the Eastern Association for the Surgery of Trauma, advancing science, fostering relationships, and
1: building careers. All right, and welcome to another East TraumaCast. We've got a great uh, topic today and a great uh, group of guests assembled to talk about it. Um, I have to say, to begin with, uh, the other day on trauma call, I was admitting maybe our fifth or sixth. 85-plus-year-old patient with injuries from a ground-level fall, and it dawned on me that although I think of myself as a trauma surgeon who operates on trauma patients, if you look at the actual numbers of admits that I take care of, what I probably spend a good chunk of my clinical time doing is taking care of elderly patients who have fallen. So um, today we have a a great discussion on, on tap for this. We're gonna discuss not only elderly falls, but specifically elderly fall prevention and uh joining me today first off uh we have uh my co-moderator Dr. Kevin Pay. Kevin, thanks for joining us. Great to be here. And uh to discuss the topic we we have two authors of the 2016 East uh Practice Management Guideline which is entitled the Prevention of Fall Related Injuries in the Elderly and Eastern Association for the Surgery Trauma Practice Management Guideline. Uh Dr's uh, Marie Crandall and uh Robert Baracco. Uh Marie and Bob, welcome and thanks for joining us as well.
2: Hi, thanks for having us.
1: Thank you. Great to be here. Um, why don't we start off, Marie, would you mind just introducing yourself a bit and then maybe tell us a little bit about how you got interested in falls and falls prevention?
2: <clears throat> sure. So I am a professor of surgery and the director of research for the University of Florida College of Medicine in Jacksonville. I've been here for about two years. I had spent most of the last 20 year previous 20 years in Chicago, both for residency training, and did a fellowship in Seattle and then spent 12 years at Northwestern. Um, This paper was authored when I was still at Northwestern and I was working with a great group of people in the guidelines section of the Eastern Association for Surgery of Trauma and we decided to look at injury prevention topics. And One of the big areas of injury prevention interest is elderly injury prevention or injury prevention among older adults. So we ended up looking at, we ended up prioritizing three areas, motor vehicle collisions, elder abuse, and um, falls. And of the three, falls are certainly one of the most common reasons that we as trauma surgeons see older adult patients. And that that was the source of our interest. So we agreed that this was an incredibly important problem and we wondered what the evidence was about injury prevention for this patient population.
1: Okay, great. Uh, Bob, same question for you. Tell us about yourself and how you got interested as well.
3: Sure. So uh, I'm a professor of surgery at the University of South Florida Morsani College of Medicine, Lehigh Valley Campus, and I'm chief academic officer here now. Um, Got interested way back in in residency um, in geriatrics. Actually, a former uh, mentor of mine uh, recently passed away, Dr. Valenziano, had uh, asked the question, have we changed the PS50 for the elderly trauma patient, the probability of survival? And I didn't have an answer then. Subsequently, we did uh, produce a a paper based on Pennsylvania data. Uh, But ever since then, I've had a special interest in geriatric trauma and in palliative care. Um, And that evolved over the years as I received my MPH from Johns Hopkins uh, with a concentration in injury studies while I was a fellow at uh, R. Adams Cowley Shock Trauma Center back in the late 90s. So that that injury prevention background just really uh, built over the years. And of course, um, if you're interested in geriatric trauma, you have to be interested in falls and fall prevention since that's the number one cause for Uh, elder trauma that we see uh, in our trauma centers. So uh, by that nature, you have to be interested in it. And starting to look into some of the factors, and maybe there are some things that we can actually start doing for this population uh, to help them, and that has us all, I think, encouraged. Okay,
1: great. Um, You both have touched on it, and I think maybe this is a good place to start. Um, My personal experience, and I've I've, uh, been in urban, Sort of large penetrating volume kind of hospitals. I've worked in rural trauma centers, and even uh, across the board, no matter where we I had practiced, it seems like the number one mechanism of injury was fall. So let's talk a little bit about the scope of the problem. Uh, maybe uh, Marie, if you want to start, and maybe uh, tell us about you know what are, are there more falls? It seems like uh, it seems like maybe as the population gets older, there are more falls happening. Is that true?
2: I think that's a great question. Um We know that falls are the cause of nearly seven hundred and fifty thousand hospitalizations and twenty five thousand deaths per year in the United States among older adults um so so it's clearly a huge problem, and as our population gets older, we expect those numbers to increase we did and so that makes the injury prevention and injury prevention research so much more important. And that is what we see in our own practice as well. That in urban or rural trauma centers, your older your older adults are going to get in car crashes and they're going to be falling. And those are the most common mechanisms of injury for them.
1: And um, Bob, do you think um, one of the questions that always comes up is is the fall the problem or is the fall a symptom of the problem? In other words, is this more a question of frailty than it is uh, of falling? Or, or how do we how do we think about this problem?
3: Oh, sure. I mean, any problem, especially in in trauma, especially in geriatric trauma, um, is multifactorial. Uh, Certainly, uh, you know, falls can be and are a marker of other things going on, whether it be uh, frailty or medications or other comorbidities. And so that is why, you know, geriatric trauma especially um, is a team sport, why we need uh, folks who are experts in. In various areas to contribute information to this cause because it's extremely important for uh, not only primary care practitioners, geriatricians, if they're present, trauma uh, surgeons, but also folks in pharmacy and rehab, uh, etc., cetera, uh, need to be involved in the care uh, of these patients. So um, certainly falls themselves are, are bad, but certainly they are contributed to uh, by these other factors, uh, some of which you mentioned, and, and again, the list is is quite long.
2: And, Dave, I think that was a very interesting question. Is it just a fall, or is it frailty that is contributing to the excess morbidity and mortality for these folks for relatively trivial mechanisms? And I, I think that that has been a source of kind of a raging debate within the trauma community. Are elderly adult falls from standing actually traumas, or are they things that can and should be managed elsewhere to not overburden the trauma resources at your particular center? And I, I think that, I think most, maybe not all, but I think most trauma centers are coming down on the side of it, It's a mel- that um, that mechanism is relative. So while a fall, from standing, for me, it would be unlikely to cause a severe injury. A fall in someone who's frail can cause severe injury. And it really is the severity of injury that I believe is the determinant in addition to frailty and comorbidities. But the severity of injury, irrespective of the mechanism, is what's going to determine the ultimate outcome. And the older you are, the worse those outcomes can be. And the more comorbidities you have, the worse those outcomes can be. So I, I echo Dr. Bracco's thoughts that that this is really, that older adult falls we are recognizing is serious and has a serious potential for significant injury severity with a finite risk of morbidity and mortality and disability after discharge. So I think that we, while we as trauma surgeons are conditioned to think of injury as mechanistic, we also need to think about it as injury severity and the injuries that are suffered.
1: I think that's an interesting concept of relative uh, mechanism. I think that's an interesting idea because this certainly, this group of patients potentially represents an altered host kind of situation where they're particularly at risk. The other thing I find is interesting, and, and uh, I just mentioned this, is that I didn't get a lot of dedicated geriatric oriented training in my fellowship, and I wonder if I could get both of your thoughts about how. As trauma training evolves, um, if there should be and uh, more of an emphasis on geriatrics, given the demographic changes that we're seeing,
3: um, I'll take first crack at that one because actually I've been talking about this for a number of years. Uh, that um, again, all the all the attention in pediatrics is wonderful. We have pediatric trauma centers. We have pediatric surgery. We have fellowships and, uh, that are related to that content. We have um, to date book chapters in the optimal resource guide related to that population. But as of yet, soon we will, but as of yet, we haven't done that for the geriatric population. And yet the same kind of interdisciplinary, multifactorial um, etiologies and risk factors can be present in both populations, right? So you have the, the specialized knowledge base and, and and population considerations in the pediatric arena and then you have a whole other set in, in the geriatric arena. Yet, you know, even when we go to do things like address standards and et cetera, sometimes we get the, the pushback that, you know, hey, we're just doing fine. We know how to take care of that population. And sometimes I wonder if that isn't a bit of, of resting on our laurels. And, uh, and I think we, we, we do have to do a bit better job in training people to those areas but it's not only the the medical pieces right the strictly medical pieces it's the it's the social pieces it's the things that you have to look for per se in a comprehensive geriatric assessment that as trauma providers we don't normally look for or ask and then it's also that piece of of palliative care when is palliative care appropriate how do you make these decisions and shared decision making. It's not necessarily the same in a younger population. And so a long time I've actually been talking about the idea of should there be a formalized geriatric surgery or geriatric trauma fellowship. Um, the College of Surgeons is creating geriatric surgery criteria for for, for surgery in the elderly across uh, the hospitals in the country. Um, It would seem to follow that if it's getting all this attention plus through the Geriatric Trauma Coalition of creating evidence-based reviews and standards in that population that we might need some specialized education um, for at least a portion of one's training if not something along the lines of a geriatric surgery or geriatric trauma fellowship which could potentially include things like uh, geriatric rotations, geriatric educator certificates, And uh, sitting for dual boards, for instance, for uh, palliative care uh, and trauma, if you can combine those in some way. So personally, I I think it is something uh, that we should be dealing with or at least talking about and saying why we don't need it if if we don't. Um, You know, we all get a lot of experience in taking care of these folks, but I still feel like, um, you know, this is a population that, that deserves a little bit more attention as it so grows over the next 20 to 40 years.
2: And I would just echo what Bob said. I think that is I, I think that is a trend, and it really should be. I mean, a, again, as the population ages, we we used to think of trauma as a young person's disease, but we see that it's not. The mean age of our patients is going up, and we're seeing older and older trauma patients. But it's not just that. Most of us are not simply trauma surgeons. We do emergency general surgery. We're acute care surgeons. We take care of patients in the ICU. And all of those things are influenced and affected by patient frailty, age, and informed decision-making. So having a partnership with a geriatrician or, or having experience in that area and certainly partnering with things like community hospice programs or early palliative care consultations is really, really key.
1: Right. Um and I, I think it's a good thing that overall across the country more and more programs are incorporating a geriatrician either in rounds or within their system, which which are all positive. But I agree with you both that there's there's room each of us as individual trauma surgeons to maybe get better acquainted with uh, the -the state-of-the-art science.
3: But more to the point, too, um, you know, as as the data shows, the geriatric workforce is declining, Um, you know, one in 2,500 to one in 4,200 geriatric practitioners. So we understand geriatricians may not be available. I think that makes that training even more important because we realize most centers won't have the availability of geriatricians, um, but, again, should at least get folks who are at least additionally trained in some way, whether it be a geriatric educator certificate, as there have been centers across the country in the past, or someone whose primary interest in primary care or otherwise is taking care of, of the elder elderly patient. Uh, but we should probably do something on our end, knowing that that geriatric workforce is going to be overwhelmed over the next uh, next couple of decades.
1: Well, uh, all very interesting topics, and I appreciate your thoughts. Um, if it's okay, let's let's move into the actual practice management guideline and maybe talk about some of the specifics. Uh, first off, I should mention that this was published in the Journal of Trauma and Acute Care Surgery in July of 2016. Um, Dr. Crandall, Marie, you're the uh, lead author, and so I'll ask you the first question. The first PICO question from the, from the PMG is: uh, Should bone mineral enhancing agents be used to prevent fall-related injuries in the elderly? Is that in the acute setting after they've already fallen and come into the hospital, or is that more geared towards maybe primary care or pre-fall?
2: I think some of these PICO questions are interrelated, and you'll notice that PICO 5 was the frailty screening for the elderly. Mm -hmm. And what we found across the interventions that we studied, and these these were not – in the acute care setting, these were none of these studies were done after um, in in an acute care setting, although some of the patients had been identified as frail after a fall in fracture risk, and many had had previous falls in many of these studies and and uh, <clears throat> in many of these studies and in these interventions so the the thing that we found almost universally is that these interventions work the best and you're best able to show a difference for frail elderly. And so you can see that they're sort of interrelated. So you need to do screening for frail elderly. And vitamin D and calcium calcium supplementation, bone mineral augmentation, seems to work best for those groups. And the same thing is true for the rest of the PICOS, which can go over one by one. Um, I will say the data overall were of moderate were of moderate quality. The bone mineral studies were probably the best, the most randomized prospective studies, um but still not uniform in terms of outcomes. So we for all of these first 5 PICO's up to and including frailty screening could only conditionally recommend our um our interventions.
1: And so I guess uh and we will get to each one of the questions if if we have time, but um I guess as of, you know, if I want to implement this practice man- management guideline right now in my practice, I don't have great integration with primary care right now. We're trying to work on some of those things, but I guess the question is should I start somebody on a uh, bisphosphonate after they've been admitted for a fall? Is that that's something that is helpful?
2: Um, the high dose vitamin D and calcium supplementation work seems to improve outcomes for frail elderly in terms of recurrent fractures or fracture risk so that is something you could do but i would also say that 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 is someone who would benefit from having a geriatrician or having a primary care physician who can govern all those things
3: yeah and i think that um i think that the other uh, piece we have to be aware of as i alluded to earlier in 2019 we'll roll out a series of standards regarding geriatric surgery and uh And some of this interdisciplinary care that we're speaking of and some of the screening, certainly, the screening is going to be a part of it. So as I was telling people uh, that I encounter, any work that you do in that arena, especially as it it pertains to uh, frailty and other screening regarding the elderly, uh, will be well worth the effort uh, once those uh, those standards come along.
1: And at some point, probably even a a major penalty, I can only see that, the guidelines or the uh, regulations becoming more strict over time. Um, not going away, likely. Um, how about the, the PICO question number two I thought was interesting. Should hip protectors be used to prevent fall-related injuries in the elderly? Uh, I'll be honest, I admit that I had never heard of hip protectors before. Uh, Marie, do you want to tell us about them? And how- Sure.
2: They're basically pillows that you strap to your hips. And if you Google them, you'll get image searches, and they look like somebody is in an old pair of, like, riding pants, like jodhpurs, purse. And there's just big pillows there. As you might imagine, they're deeply unpopular because of the excess right. fluff around the hips. So compliance in the non-frail, non-demented elderly was very, very poor. And as low as, like, 15 to 20% in some wow. series, but as high as 60% in some other series. So it, it is an option for your very frail, demented elderly because it does seem to work. But compliance was the key misadventure with that intervention.
1: Yeah, if you Google them, they do, they, they sort of look like – I thought of football pants with the, mm-hmm. with the hip pad. Yeah. And mm-hmm. I can imagine trying to yep. get a frail, elderly patient who maybe has dementia to even wear a pair of those to help – to help put them on. I
3: mean sometimes it's hard to keep a hospital gown on on those folks. <laughs> right. Yeah, there was there was a 2014 Cochrane review as well which really said that the main utilization was probably in the nursing facility setting um for the reduction of of hip fractures um that uh you know so again multiple sources uh, our own with East of course and then some uh, some Cochrane collaborative reviews also looked at the same issue and, and compliance, obviously being a major issue in that regard.
1: Um, I'm going to skip over PICO three and discuss it with uh, maybe PICO six, but um, let's let's talk about uh, PICO question number four: Physical environment modifications. Should they be used to prevent fall-related injuries in the elderly? Um, in the, in practice, what does this mean? Does this does this mean sending someone to the person's house to do a home safety eval or what exactly does this entail?
2: So, in, in in effect, yes, in countries like Norway and in Cuba, although it hasn't been described in Cuba, it has been described in Scandinavian countries. They will send a an, <coughs> an occupational therapist to a person's house and will evaluate for rugs that you can trip over and and unsecured lamp courts, let's say, and uneven floorboards or things that. Um, that are potentially slippery or stairs that don't have that are unguarded and slippery so they will they will look at all of those things with an eye toward modification very similar to having you know someone come into your house and show you all the all the circuits that need to be protected when you have a kid or all the knobs that need to be secured so kids can't get into cabinets um it would be very similar to that only with an eye toward preventing falls in the home in doing things like Placing uh, um, lift bars in a bathtub, or you know, steadying bars, or steadying bars by a um, by a toilet, things like that.
3: Yeah, and I think some of the issue um, uh, is also, you know, these folks sometimes refuse transport, and how do you get them a home safety eval if they're not really in the system? So there actually, we're a couple models out there of, of EMS-based. EMS um, home safety evals, uh, you know, for folks to, that are in the home and they see some triggers. You know, say they see some of the, the home safety issues, which we, we, we talk about routinely, like uh, throw rugs and clutter and uh, cords and uh, no grab bars or safety things in the bathroom, such as that, uh, that they might be able to then interact with primary care folks in their catchment area that the patient might go to. Uh, to be able to at least alert them to certain things. Now it hasn't been formalized; it's only been here and there. But I certainly have heard about these these types of, of programs in response. Uh, again, there were a couple of Cochrane reviews about preventing falls of folks living in the community, uh, and uh, one in particular looked at 160 studies, and they looked part of the study uh, studies they were looking at examined home safety modifications and found them effective at reducing the rate and risk of falls. So. Especially in high-risk elders, but also, especially when when done, uh, some of these um, interventions are done in association with uh, occupational therapy. And in many environments, they're usually the ones to do uh, the home safety eval. So, again, I think it's something that we haven't had the personnel to accomplish if we conventionally think of inside the box of occupational therapy or another professional such as that doing these. But if we can engage the help. Of, of folks who might be closer to that environment and may have interaction in that environment with a patient um, in their own communities, um, it may be that uh, something like EMS or or other uh, local agencies uh, might be able to help us in this regard to increase the reach of uh, home safety evals.
2: I think Bob's point is really, really important because many folks, transportation is an issue and if we could partner not just with EMS but let's say local community services community services for the elderly or meals on wheels or um or local churches to do home visits and have trained personnel accompany them that might be an avenue for both entry into the house and trust trust building and improving of elder outcomes in many health related many health related areas
1: yeah it seems like there's just a huge need um Maybe there's even a role for sort of public health or public education, you know, along the lines of CPR or things like that, where if everybody had a little bit of knowledge about physical safety of the environment and maybe some easy, you know, quick and easy things to look for, maybe that's another avenue. Um, interesting. Um, let me combine PICO 3 and PICO 6. Both of these are basically about um, formalized programs that can be implemented or have been implemented to prevent fall-related injuries. One is, uh, PICO-3 is about exercise programs, and PICO-6 is multiple interventions sort of bundled. So um, maybe, uh, Marie, if you wouldn't mind telling us what, what programs are out there and, and what sort of evidence exists to support them? Mm-hmm.
2: So there some of the best programs are um, combined things like Tai Chi. Tai Chi has been studied quite a bit. Yoga type practices um others are balance and other directed false prevention um, uh, programs and uh and then the comprehensive risk reduction strategies include many things, like ensuring that patients eyeglass prescriptions are up to date and exercise programs, and if someone has low bone mineral density or is very frail, to put them on vitamin D and calcium supplementation. So those kind of bundled programs, those actually had the best odds ratios in meta-analyses and in clinical studies. And I think that they make sense. Targeted individualized strategies seem to make sense, but they're also undoubtedly the most expensive as opposed to blanket educational programs. But that being said, if you target target only the highest risk people, such as the frail, you may have more bang for your buck and you may better be able to identify and then tr- and, and prevent injury in those highest risk individuals. So there are there are a multitude of um exercise programs that have been that have been employed, but most of them have some sort of strengthening and balance component. Do you want to add to that, Bob?
3: No, I, I would agree. Um, you know, uh Dr. Crandall's right uh right on the, uh, on the ball there with that, that response, that there are programs that seem to work. Uh, but, again, you know, how do you get these to the, to the folks that need them? I think you mentioned it before. We talked about the workforce. You also mentioned uh, that um, there is a great need for uh, help in this area and and it is because remember you know the population you know over 85 you know grown from 2005 to 2050 over five fold i mean that that is a huge need and so anything that we would do in this regard will will certainly help but like i said there's even some cochrane results that that are showing that exercise programs can help with the risk and rate of falls uh, now that being said You know, some folks were trying to relate that, and I know we're going to probably talk about that as well, uh, to frailty or the reduction in frailty, and we can't really confuse that issue. You know, the the mechanism of fall itself and whether that helps through the strengthening and et cetera um, is one thing. And then uh, frailty or the frailty syndrome um, is bigger than that.
1: Let me ask... uh all of you what are you doing in your own hospitals we we have just recently started to implement the steady program uh which is sort of one of these bundled you know multifactorial assessments and intervention programs that involves physical therapy and pharmacy and and reaches out to primary care and stuff what 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 are each of you doing in your hospital maybe uh, Marie first
2: um we have also started to employ the um the steady program and um we have a geriatrics consultation service. While they're not embedded in our, um, while they're not embedded in our with our trauma program, we do have consultants that we can that we can um, reach out to that are in our institute on aging and who have who have expertise in things like falls and polypharmacy. So I would say we're probably on the we're probably on the tail end of what is being done as opposed to the forefront of what is being done. We have some pretty basic things that we've done. We do have some researchers who are interested in in older adult clinical outcomes, but I cannot say we're at the forefront of falls prevention among our hospitalized patients.
3: Bob, how about you? I think that, I don't know. Dr. Crandall, I think that's kind of an underestimate. <laughs> I mean, I think uh, I think we're all at the beginnings uh, of this, uh, you know, at some portion of the of the uh, front part of the wave here. I think because, uh, you know, again, as I said in the past, there's been a lot of pushback into separating off this this population at times. Uh, but um, but for us, uh, similarly, we've had uh, consultation services. Uh, they have trained our uh, APCs, who are our primary providers on the floors, residents. Some involvement in the floors, but mostly deal with ICU patients uh, so uh, we've had them uh, train our folks there um, and, uh, and have done some work in falls with not only the steady program but we have had a geriatric fall quote unquote no uh, true pun intended uh, symposium that takes place in the fall um, for provide, for um, uh, caregivers and for uh, uh, community elderly that uh, we actually did some studies on early on, some published in the emergency medicine literature regarding attitudes about falls in geriatric patients and, and how comfortable they are uh, speaking about that with their providers, um, et cetera. Uh, so uh, we have held that symposium to address some of those uh, issues uh, annually, and now this year have started a, a geriatric trauma symposium uh, where uh, we will be uh, having actually Dr. Mangram as our, our keynote speaker uh, and so we are very involved from not only the trauma point of view, but especially the emergency medicine point of view. Remember, trauma sees a very small portion of these patients. 2.8 million people fall and report it. But as, as Dr. Crandall said, only about 750,000, 800,000 are hospitalized. So uh, we really do need to reach primary care. We need to reach emergency medicine. We need to reach the urgy centers, you know, where some of these folks might be showing up. and uh, And make sure they're educated. We also had uh, a, a program called Safe Step-In that we brought out to the communities. And we actually uh, worked with, I believe it was physical or occupational therapy, perhaps both, who um, would go out to some of these events and do some testing um, with them, like time get up and go and etc. cetera. Uh, but the educational intervention talked about all the things we, we really just talked about and more, things like vision, hearing, um, Comorbidities, medications, Beers criteria—all uh, of these things that contribute to make the fall a contribute to the fall, but also making the outcome uh, from the fall worse. We did a, a huge portion on home safety, um, including addressing various areas of the home, indoor, outdoor, um, and also intersection safety, which also came up um, through uh, through some of these. Uh, uh, some of these uh, prevention uh, guidelines uh, with East uh, one of the things that did come up was pedestrian safety uh, especially in the elderly so so we've done we've done that uh, but again you know we still see such a high rate it's 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 just it's just not enough it's not that we're at the front end or the back end any of us it's just that it's such a large problem population to address that it seems like we're on the back end or to drop in the bucket Agreed.
1: Right. Uh, Kevin, how about at Yale? Uh, what are you guys doing?
0: Yeah. Uh, so we we have um, – li- we don't have a protocolized – and maybe that's something that I was going to ask is, you know, does it work when you have a protocolized multidisciplinary approach to it? But we have just basically liberal liberal use of geriatric consults, home safety evaluations, and relying a lot on our physical therapists and occupational therapists to help us identify who of these patients are likely to to fall again, um, but we don't we don't have some sort of a protocolized way. Um, and yet, and, and for that matter, I'm not exactly sure that I uh, I think I have a pretty good sense of who I feel like will will fall again likely, but I really don't know. You know, um, I don't know who's going to fall again and how we can um, go about prevent, preventing them. Except the liberal use of those consultation services.
2: I think that's a fair point. I think we're getting better at recognizing patients who will fall again because the frailty index, I think, has been shown to be an independent predictor of injury, re injury, readmissions, and poor outcomes. So I think you, if we can identify a frail elderly person, that's helpful. Also, I, I don't know that we have an absolute value for this, but certainly noticing that the older patients who experienced the polypharmacy iatrogenosis, you know. So your patients who are on Ambien and Ativan and every other kind of psychoactive medication in the book and, and they're falling should not be a surprise. Also, one of the things that we are not terribly good at, despite American college surgeons' mandates about brief interventions and screening, are alcohol and drug problems in our older adult patients, uh, particularly coupled with depression or suicidality. So those are things that we're not very good at addressing in our older patients.
3: Yeah, I would I would agree with that. I think uh, there's so much, again, so much out there um, that has not been discussed well. Certainly, you know, geriatric depression, geriatric depression scale exists. Get that. The substance abuse issues. Um, but have we really adequately uh, addressed them? And then that's not even going into the idea of elder abuse, which is hugely mm-hmm. underreported, and there's no real good organized mechanism yet right. at this point for for addressing that. So, you know, problems go go well beyond falls. But if we're able, usually if we're able to identify folks at risk, they're usually at risk in one or more of these areas. And it, and again, that that look under the hood could probably contribute to. More data on each of those things, and, and not only falls uh, falls alone.
1: All right, uh, let me let me say first off the bat here, because this next question is going to sound strange, but uh, let me say that I'm a believer in all the all the stuff that we're talking about, and 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 let me just put that out there. But let me play the part of the skeptic for a second here, and let me say, um, you know, falls prevention in some ways it's a little bit different than say motor vehicle safety or firearm violence prevention or things like that in that um, there's sort of a sense of inevitability about it. I mean, all of us, if we uh, successfully navigate, you know, our early years and don't don't die of uh, traumatic injury before we're age 45, and if we don't get heart disease and we don't get cancer, you know, at some point we're going to get frail, we're going to get old, and there's a good chance that we're going to fall. It, 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 are we really, with these programs, are we preventing falls or are we just kind of pushing the time frame back a little
2: bit? Maybe, I, I would say that we actually can prevent falls. I mean, obviously, none of us are getting out of here alive, right? So we're all going to die of something. But the pain and suffering associated with multiple rib fractures, maybe a splenic laceration, a hip fracture, immobility, and the humiliation and prolonged nursing care that goes with all of those things can certainly be prevented. I mean, if you have to go, you might as well go of a massive heart attack or a cerebral Hemorrhage or something when you're 100, but you've been completely healthy and mobile and active up to that point. So I think we can by by addressing things like polypharmacy and frailty and treating underlying conditions, treating treating substance abuse issues, treating depression, improving health, mobility and um, dexterity, <clears throat> sorry dexterity, independence of our of our older adult patients. I think all of those things are are really important, but I, I really think it does starts with identifying the highest risk patients, and finding comprehensive strategies that would work for each of
3: them. Yeah, I would agree. I think that um, it's not only preventing the falls, but it's preventing the injury from the fall, right? And so that's really what a lot of what East uh, prevention evidence based reviews have been targeting is not just can we reduce falls or the rate of falls, and there's several Cochrane reviews on those, like I said, uh, but can we actually reduce the injury and or the uh, outcome, the poor outcome related to the injury of the fall? So I think that's where a lot of this comes into play. Um, we could probably do a bit of both, and, and I think that's where, where it is. So you know, if we do a bit of both, Maybe we can lower that, which I think the most recent number I saw, I think it's higher than that now, but the most recent published number I saw was that in the year 2020, we will spend $55 billion direct costs on falls um, in this country. So we have to do something. And I do think that there are interventions that show they work both for reducing rate and risk of falls and reducing the severity of the outcome of the fall. Um, And certainly, as was mentioned earlier, things like polypharmacy, appropriate medications, and um, home safety evals um, will go a long way towards making a dent in that number. But you're right. Will we ever get to zero? No, we'll never get to zero. But, hey, if we reduced by, say, even conservatively 10 to 20 percent, you're talking about 5 to $10 billion plus all of the the um, quality of life concerns, and et cetera, associated with a bad fall. So for me, when I think from a public health framework, um, the magnitude of the problem, any of those that you choose to to attribute the magnitude, whether it be outcome, severity of outcome, quality of life, cost, um, seem worth the effort um, in my mind.
1: Yeah, and I would say, you know, taking off the skeptic hat, which doesn't fit me very well in this in this case, but uh, you know, if we do, even if we do, even if all we are doing is pushing it back, that time is meaningful time. I mean, if it means if I can go to my grandchild's wedding or graduation or something like that, it that's not uh, that's not an insignificant benefit in in my mind. So I, sure. I agree with you both. Mm-hmm. Um, Kevin, do you have any comments or questions you'd like to
0: add? Uh, I've been dying to ask. It's a little off topic, but um, what 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 is your practice on patients who um, who have the propensity to fall and have traumatic brain injury? Um, do you do you just tell their pri- primary care doctors, you know, look, this patient is really high risk for falls, so therefore um, never again should you put the patient back on uh, anticoagulation for the atrial fibrillation? Or um, what, what's your practice in that, and especially this patient population that's that has high tendency to fall?
2: I think that's an awesome question, and I think you could get people to come <laughs> to blows over it, seriously,
0: <laughs>
2: right? Um, I, you know, it depends. It's pick your poison. Do you want to clot or do you want to do you want to bleed? <laughs> and I'd rather have my patients clot, but that's because, you know, I'm not a cardiologist. So <laughs> I always yeah. tell them they absolutely, under no circumstances can you re-anticoagulate yeah. this, high mm-hmm. risk, this person who has a high risk of falls, but then, you know, then you get... Screamed at. There is there is some data though that suggests that patients themselves would rather bleed than would rather bleed than have a than having having an ischemic stroke. Of course, what they don't understand is that you can also get a cerebral bleed if you fall and hit your head. Right. But you know that's. That's the only evidence that we have, and it's the only data we have to support any position, but I think it's flawed by not really talking about the risk of intracranial bleed, which is, can be catastrophic. So I I tend to let people clot, but I don't know what your practice is, what, you're, what you all practice.
3: Well, if you're, again, you're talking about AFib. It's a bit of a different story. And, you know, then if you're talking about valves and, and necessity right. for – or if you're talking about any of the um, – the uh, hypercoagulable state. Um, So so certainly in in those latter groups, we're gonna work with cardiology and with neurosurgery and neurology to create a plan for getting folks back on their anticoagulation as safely as we can. But in afib, again, it's a little bit different story. Or that patient that has been put on Coumadin for a PE they had 10 years ago, and for no other reason than, oh yeah, I'm still on it. You told me I should stay on it for life. (laughs) Um, yeah we get those too and and those you know we're gonna risk assess Hey, do you have a hypercoagulable state for a fib? what is your chad score? What is your annual stroke risk and And if your annual stroke risk is is truly significant, then you're right that's that that may be outweighed, and we may put them on something um, We haven't seen any direct substitution of. For instance, aspirin for such and you know in Australia years ago, they did a study which supposedly showed no significant change in outcome of subbing aspirin for the more uh the more uh bleeding associated if you will um anticoagulants uh for folks who have had injurious falls, but I haven't really seen that reproduced anywhere else, and it was actually run by mm-hmm. a pharmacy it was an auto sub in a hospital pharmacy uh that they did so um, you know, are there other agents? But, but I think for, for us, again, we'll try and take certainly the risk into consideration. If their risk is very small, then absolutely not. If their risk is very significant, again, like the valve, like the other things, we may have to uh, have to create a plan to get people, uh, people back on. Because as Dr. Crandall said, you know, a debilitating stroke isn't really any better uh, than a debilitating head bleed. Um, you know, it's the same essential outcome. Um, so uh, that yeah, being said, I, I
2: completely uh, agree with Bob. It's a balance, yeah. you know. Chad's score yeah. annualized stroke risk yep. versus how frail is this person, how likely, mm-hmm. how many times mm-hmm. have they fallen in the last sure. year?
3: Sure. Right. Yeah. And then, and then there's the issue of of coming up with novel anticoagulants, you know, without mm-hmm. without potential antidotes, and uh, and that's another particularly uh, particularly vexing problem, you know, is that uh, as we come up with newer agents that outstrip our 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 antidote agents, if you will, uh, that um, that that creates a special problem um, for us, I think.
0: Right. This discussion then leads me to this idea of um, the importance of having the primary care doctors. I mean, I think it's incredibly laudable that trauma surgeons are talking about how do we minimize, um, if you're going to fall, how do we minimize the injuries related to the fall? But Um, where are the PCPs um, at this in terms of a national platform? Is is this being discussed on their platform? And um, don't they have a really big part in playing both the prevention of the fall as well as um, how do we mitigate the the severity of the injury when they do fall?
2: Um, Yeah, I completely agree. And I would actually say that a lot of the heavy lifting on this has been done by primary care physicians. If you look at the really, really strong data from Scandinavia and and other places – they've had good success with comprehensive programs, it's not been trauma surgeons that are right. performing these interventions or, or spearheading them. They've been primary care community physicians.
3: Yeah, I, th- I think, um, I think again, speaking, as I said before, it kind of brings us back to where we kind of started. You know, geriatric trauma as pediatric trauma is even more of an interdisciplinary sport than a than, uh, team sport than... Uh, trauma in the mid ranges um even though we know um it truly is right uh, in, in any of the patients, but especially especially in those two extremes of age um, you you have to have have that buy in and so things like um medication reconciliation then become a special issue among other issues of communication with the primary care physicians, et cetera, so you have to maintain that communication they have to get discharge summaries that are accurate they have to get. Uh, not only their medication reconciliation of now what are they on coming out of the hospital and why, but it probably is a good idea. And that's one of the areas where our geriatricians had really excelled was communication with the primary care docs to so that the patient didn't go back out in the community and wind up on the same meds that got them there, because they weren't explained to why things were changed and they and uh, they didn't uh, appreciate the uh, the risk from those medications. So. So to me, I think that, that's a huge thing. They need to be on board. They need to be leading the effort. And as we said earlier, they're seeing the majority of them and hearing of the majority of the falls. We're not. We're just seeing the, the worst of the worst, so to speak. So, Right.
1: right. Um, well, this has been a great discussion, and I appreciate all of your insights. This, this obviously opens up much larger topics and, and other areas we could get into. Um are there, uh, as, as our time is drawing to a closer, are there resources or websites that you each would recommend for people who are interested in starting up a program or maybe enhancing their program?
2: Bob, I'm going to defer to you on this. You are definitely well, I think, more an well, expert I think, than I.
3: Yeah, I think, obviously, we talked about it. We alluded to it. The CDC uh, website and the steady program, uh, I think, is very important. I think referencing the evidence-based reviews that exist, obviously, from EAST, but also the uh, few Cochrane collaborative reviews uh, that there are uh, can certainly help folks uh, provide the impetus behind some of the changes that they're seeking, uh, seeking to make. So that's probably uh, probably the places that, that I would go. Uh, the AAST Geriatric Trauma Committee has been active, and uh, through our website, through the AAST uh, website itself, we have pages there. Uh, with uh, a few links to resources, but as well as we've just created a common slide deck regarding geriatric falls and are in the process of creating uh, additional slide decks uh, that are more specialty or uh, learner specific uh, so that you can uh, use the slides that are there and be able to make your your arguments uh, for uh, the things that you need. And then lastly, of course, keep an eye on the American College of Surgeons website regarding the Geriatric Surgery Quality Program, uh, because that will be coming uh, by 2019 to a hospital near you. Um, so um, so I definitely would keep abreast uh, of the happenings uh, there. As always, the AGS website is extremely helpful, American Geriatric Society, especially with its uh, BEERS criteria, uh, but also there's several resources um, through their links to resources or resources themselves uh, through their uh, website as well. Great, and we will put links to each of those things
1: as, as much as we possibly can uh, up on the EAST webpage. So if you're listening, go to EAST.org, uh, look under the TraumaCast section, and we should have links to those resources just mentioned. Well, Dr. Baracco and Dr. Crandall, thank you very much for joining us. I very much appreciate your time and wisdom and uh, insight that you've offered us today.
3: Thank you. Thank you so much.
1: And Kevin uh, Pay, thank you for joining us as well. Pleasure. Thanks for having me. All right. Take care, everyone. And that wraps up another edition of TraumaCast brought to you by the East Online Education Section of the Eastern Association for the Surgery of Trauma. You can check out all the great educational and career development resources available on the East website at www.east.org. And make sure you subscribe to the TraumaCast series so you don't miss any of our exciting upcoming programs and interviews. So if you're searching for cutting-edge science and research, professional education, networking and building relationships, and career development, remember that all you need to do is look to the east.